0: You're listening to Comedy Central.
1: November 7th, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Ears Edition. <laughs> from New York Magazine. Rebecca Traister is here, everybody. A really wonderful writer. And she has a new book out about the power of women's anger. And I can't imagine anything women have to be angry about right now. (laughs) Well, what do you think, Justice Kavanaugh? Still like beer. My man. (laughs) All right, but first, yesterday was the midterm elections, which you probably know by now, because Instagram was full of people showing off their I Voted stickers. Like yesterday, no picture was taken that didn't include an I Voted sticker. Even dick pics had the stickers in them. (laughs) I know because I received many. (laughs) And as you probably also know, the Democrats ended the night riding high.
0: A power shift in Washington. Democrats take the House for the first
1: time in eight years. House Minority Leader, soon to be potentially House Majority Leader, Nancy Pelosi, said her party's wins mark a new day in America. It's about stopping the GOP and Mitch McConnell's assaults on Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, and the health care of 130 million Americans living with pre-existing medical conditions. Let's hear it more for pre existing medical conditions. Yeah! Woo! Let's give it up for pre existing conditions. Diabetes, I see you, baby. We got eczema in the house. Mm hmm. Asthma makes them gnaw. Boys, come on, asthma. That was a bit weird. That's right after eight years of being weaker than Ben Carson's coffee, the House Democrats finally have a semblance of power. And when the day started, I honestly thought this was going to be today's big story, because now that the Democrats have the House, there are so many questions. You know, what is their plan for working with Trump? Will Nancy Pelosi reprise her role as speaker? Will Bernie Sanders MC my birthday party? You know, questions we all have about the future of the country. So we thought today's news would be focused on all of that. But then... President Trump stood up and said, no, 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 you guys might have taken control of the house, but the news cycle will always be mine.
0: Fireworks from the East Room of the White House just a short time ago as President Trump repeatedly clashing with members of the media.
1: On the campaign trail, you called yourself a nationalist. Some people saw that as emboldening white nationalists. Now people are also saying that the president. I don't know why you'd that say the that. Pres- that's such a racist There's question. Some- let me tell you, that's a racist question. I think you should let me run the country, you run CNN. Right. And if you did it well, your ratings would well, be ask much if better. I, if I may okay, ask one other question, I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude Terrible person. You shouldn't in, treat people that way. Go ahead.
0: In, in, go in, ahead, Jim, Peter. Go in, ahead. In, in Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts well, his Well, I'm not Michael a big fan us. of yours either. <laughs>
1: oh! Damn, that escalated fast. <laughs> what happened there? Peter Alexander just tried to be that guy who steps in to stop the fight and then ended up getting punched in the face. That's what happened. <laughs> Mr. President, you being inappropriate. Your mama's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> But look, I mean, as troubling as this was, let's be honest, Trump attacking the press, this is something we've seen a hundred times before. What we haven't seen is how the president plans to work with the new democratic house. I really believe that we have a chance to get along very well with the Democrats. We should get along and get deals done. Now we can investigate, they look at us, we look at them, it goes on for two years, then at the end of two years, nothing's done. Now, what's bad for them is being in the majority, I'm just gonna blame them, you understand. I'm gonna blame them, they're the majority. Honestly, it makes it much simpler for me. I, they will be blamed. You know, as shameless as that is, I somehow appreciate that Trump just told us his entire evil plots. He's like a cliched movie bad guy. And then, even if it's not their fault, I'll blame the Democrats for everything. What are you doing? They're like, why are you telling us this? Because it's what villains do. <laughs> They'll never see it coming. <laughs> and now, to be honest with you, there's no highlights that I can show you from this press conference that can do it justice. Because it was an hour and a half of crazy Trump at his finest. All right, he accused the media of dividing the country. He trashed Republicans who wouldn't bow down to him. And he even threatened to investigate the Democrats if they used the House to investigate Russia or his tax returns. Like Trump was raging mad. And then what was hilarious <laughs> is that in the middle of all this chaos, this was one of my favorite moments. <laughs> he had to take questions from a bunch of people who couldn't even speak American.
0: So how you focus on the trade and issue with Japan? Would you ask Japan to do more? Or would you change your tone?
1: I don't, I really don't understand.
0: It's the election of two mus- Muslim women. One of them is veiled to the house, which is making history. Is this a rebuke of this message, do you think? I don't understand
1: what you're saying. What? President Erdogan said he's not gonna follow your sanctions and he's gonna keep uh, buying uh, oil from- uh, Who said that? Uh, President Erdogan. Turkey. I know, I know. I know, I know. No, no, I know, I know. I know exactly, I know. Yeah. I, you tell me first, but I know, I know, I know. <laughs> what the hell's going on there? Trump can't understand anyone with an accent? That would be so weird because he lives with Melania, okay? <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> Absolutely no sense. Unless, unless that's probably why they're still together. She's like, Donald, I want divorce. I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I want divorce. Okay, fine, I'll get you a horse. Every day, she asks for a horse, so cute. She says she wants to file. You don't need to file for a horse. You can just get one, baby. I'll just buy you one. So now, so now, at this point in the day, we were like, all right, forget the Democrats in the house. Clearly the big news of the day is now gonna be Trump and his fiery press conference. But then Trump stood up again and said, oh, you think I'm the story of the day? No, I'm the story of the day. CNN breaking news. Breaking news, President Trump suddenly fires the Attorney General Jeff Sessions for the unpardonable sin of recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Jeff Sessions forced to resign today at President Trump's request. President Trump fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Okay, now, that's not fair to President Trump, all right? He didn't fire Jeff Sessions. He just said, Rumpelstiltskin, and then the curse was broken. That's how it works. And remember, this is all happening in one day. (laughs) Realize this? All of this is happening in one day. And this is huge news. The president has fired his attorney general. And I know there were rumors that this might happen. I mean, in fact, people were talking about Sessions getting fired for so long, he probably already had a backup job lined up. He's like, it's okay. I'm already assistant manager at Baby Gap. (laughs) But... But I want you to know I've recused myself from folding those onesies. And the timing, yo, man, the timing is so brazen from Trump. This is literally less than 24 hours after the midterms. He knew that this wouldn't look good before the midterms. He doesn't even wait. He just, like, pulls the trigger on this thing. Like, I feel like he could have at least made it seem like he needed to think about it first, you know? It's like when you're in a relationship and your girlfriend is like, hey, if something ever happened to me, which one of my friends would you? Karen! (laughs) And I didn't even finish what I was, what I was going to... What? Oh, what, what are you going to say? I'll say, which one of my friends would you hook up with? Karen, yeah, Karen. <laughs> Have you been thinking about this? No, it just came in my head now. Yeah, Karen on the beach in Montauk. Yeah, that's, uh... <laughs> just, like, think about it, Trump, fake it! And I never thought I'd say this, but I feel bad for Jeff Sessions, because apparently Trump didn't fire him to his face or even call him, all right? He just sent John Kelly with, like, a pre-written resignation letter, yeah, John Kelly probably got there and he was like, all right, Jeff, you want to do this the easy way or the Omarosa way? Which one is it? <laughs> and now just, just looking at Trump and Sessions, like this is, this is a strange story because there were so many reasons these two should have gotten along, right? They both don't like immigrants. They both do like white people. But there was always one big thing that Trump hated about Sessions. He recused himself from overseeing the Mueller investigation, which meant that he couldn't protect Trump from Mueller. And now with Sessions gone, Trump can finally appoint a guy he knows for sure will protect his ass. And what an ass. (laughs) A guy who could kill the Mueller investigation if he wanted to. And from the looks of it, the guy Trump picked for the job would be more than happy. The chief of staff to Jeff Sessions, Matt Whitaker, will be the new acting attorney general. Whitaker told CNN last year that the new attorney general could reduce Mueller's budget, make it so small that the Mueller investigation would grind to a halt. I could see a scenario where Jeff Sessions is replaced uh, with a recess appointment, and that attorney general doesn't fire Bob Mueller, but he just reduces the budget so low that his, his investigation grinds to an, almost a halt. Man, Donald Trump is so rock and roll. So he probably saw this guy on CNN talking about how he would squash the Mueller investigation, and then Trump just decided to hire him. Yeah, dude from the TV. I want him and Barney, I'm in. (laughs) And his plan, this guy's plan to kill the investigation is just that he would drain all of Mueller's resources, which is the most passive, aggressive way to kill an investigation. So Mueller's gonna show up at work, and he's gonna be like, we finally cracked the Russian collusion case. Time to print out the indictments. Oh, we don't have printer ink. Yeah, we ran out. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll just fill it out online. Oh, we didn't pay for Wi-Fi this month. You know what? It's okay. I'll just drive to Kinko's. Oh, we sold the Justice Department's car. By the end of this, the investigation is just gonna be Mueller walking down the street making siren noises with his mouth like, wee-woo, 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 wee Put your hands behind your back and imagine those handcuffs. Now, look, maybe I'm being too quick to judge, all right? I'll admit this, maybe I am. Just because Matt Whitaker over here came up with a hypothetical plan to fire Robert Mueller doesn't mean that he actually thinks the Mueller investigation has gone too far, all right? Except there is the fact that he also wrote an op-ed that was literally called Mueller's investigation of Trump has gone too far, (laughs) which to me is kind of a red flag. So, my friends, let's face it. The Mueller investigation is in danger, Yeah. And something tells me that right now, Robert Mueller is in a bathroom stall trying to finish his homework before they shut it all down. (laughs) He's just like, I'm in here working! (laughs) And now you realize that all of this happened in one day and one day after the midterms. And this is what freaks me out. For the last two years, that's been Trump when he's winning. Now we're going to see Trump when he's losing. We'll be right back. My guest tonight is a writer at large for New York Magazine and best selling author whose latest book is called Good and Mad The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Please welcome Rebecca (laughs) Traester. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Congratulations on your new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. So, Rebecca, what do women have, or do women have anything to be angry about in America? No, we're good. You're good? We're good,
0: yeah. All right. right. Yeah. has been fun.
1: Thank you so much right. for tuning in, everybody. This is a... Um, it... it is really timely that this book would come out, um, not just after the midterms, but but really after the the, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. It felt like that was a moment in America where many women's voices were being heard and many women were saying, hey, this story sounds familiar to me. Mm -hmm. We are never heard. What are you talking about when you say the power of women's anger?
0: Well, in part, I'm looking at the history of women's anger as it has been expressed within political contexts in this country and how that anger has often been... The catalyst for some of the social movements that have transformed the country, from abolition and suffrage to the labor movement, obviously to the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, and the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s. At the beginning of so many of those movements, there were angry women, women angry at injustice, at inequality. But we're not very often told the story of their anger as having been righteous. We are told that women's anger is laughable, marginal, hysterical, Uh, women of color's anger is treated as volatile and dangerous, threatening. Um, We're not encouraged to look at women's anger as something that brings us political progress, but it really has over and over again in this country. And so part of the book is an attempt to kind of tell that story and acknowledge the political consequences of women who are angry at inequality.
1: It is an interesting time to see this conversation start because it, you know, you, you have the midterms where we have now, I think it's over 100 women in the House, right? Mm-hmm. Nine governorships went to women. Mm-hmm. So women have come out in full force saying, we're running, we want to be a part of running this country and making the change for ourselves.
0: And a lot of their candidacies stem from their anger. In the, in the early months of the Trump administration, after the, after the 2016 election, um, when we first began to get a sense of how many women were going to step up and run for office on federal levels, on state and local levels, so many of them said... I'm furious. I'm angry at what just happened. Right. I'm angry at my lack of representation. I'm angry that this guy who admitted to grabbing women by the pussy can then go on and be elected president. Right. And I am going to do something to change this. And so, so many of these candid- candidacies stem from anger. A lot of them were at the Women's March. It was a protest that was born in part of fury, a desire to, like, hold up big, profane signs and express how angry women were. And people didn't necessarily take it seriously, even though it was the biggest single-day political protest in the country's history they said oh it was the hats right, right the hats it was the pink hats The pink hats and um and I look back at how people talked about that march the next day on in mainstream political coverage and sort of said oh but you know they they had the the big gathering with the hats but mm-hmm. what are they going to really do well they ran for office in unprecedented numbers and yesterday women won women of color won seats <laughs> numbers, and that changes something that's always been broken in this country. It doesn't fix it. But we have always lived with this promise that we live in a representative democracy, but uh-huh. in fact, you know, our government institutions have not represented us, and they still don't. Just, you know, it's still, it's still right, less right, than right. 25%. Don't worry. We're not anywhere close to actual representation. But, <laughs> um, um, but, that kind of thing, new, new faces, new models for what leadership might look like, that actually does begin to get us moderately closer to something like the, the founding promise that has always gone unmet.
1: When, when you look at the way women's anger is met in, in, in many conversations, there is a, a, a disconnect between anger when it comes from a man and then anger when it comes from a woman. As you say, like, you know, I, when I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings, for instance... I remember thinking to myself, Dr. Ford was composed and she was in a really tough situation. I thought to myself, if she had reacted the way Brett Kavanaugh did, berating people and screaming and shouting, she would have been dragged out of there and people would have been like, yo, this bitch is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> people would have said things like that. They would have, like, that's, that's the notion around... We
0: can't even imagine yes. it. Like, the only... You imagine her screaming, I, I like beer, and, and it's like... <laughs> no. Or, or, t- or turning the questions back on... You know how we exactly. said to Klobuchar, you know, well, have you ever blocked and blacked out? Can you imagine right. her turning those questions back on the Senate Judiciary? She would have been arrested. So then
1: how do how do women then use that anger in a way? Because, we, like, I, I won't deny that. I've, I've also had to reframe how I think of it in my head, where I go, like, oh, yeah, like, it's just... People get angry. People can use their anger in positive ways. But how do you then move it forward for women? How do you then say to women, like, how this is how we use our anger in a way that doesn't get blocked by men?
0: Part of the trick is not telling women how to express or not express their anger differently it's doing what you just said which is you've had to adjust your ears to how you hear women's anger so we can't necessarily work our way through a system that doesn't make room for our fury right but we can start to listen to the fury of other women differently and understand it as valid we can start to listen for women's anger and think oh wait maybe that's pointing me towards something that's broken and needs to be fixed instead of hearing she's crazy right right and that's part, of, that's part of the message.
1: In, in, in the book, there are so many interesting uh, points that you, you, you draw from history, um, and you talk about what's happening to us today. When we talk about Hillary Clinton, and you look at the passages in the book about her, there is an interesting dilemma that Hillary faced, and that was, if Hillary was angry, people said she's annoying, she's irritating... If she wasn't angry, they said she doesn't have the passion. Mm-hmm. So then it does it become, you know, a catch-22 for women who are in positions of power?
0: It has been historically. That's one of the reasons that we need to we need to think differently about how we're hearing, receiving, and responding to women's voices raised in passion or dissent. Hillary was running against two men. Um, in the Democratic primary and then in the general election, who used anger beautifully. They were able to channel the anger of their supporters, and they were credited for it. Uh, But every time she spoke too close to a microphone, somebody said, stop yelling at us. And at the same time, she faced this criticism. She's not really, she doesn't have any of the real emotion to connect with her voters. So this is a bind that women have been in for a long time. If they yell, they're seen as off-putting, especially if they're in positions of power Mm -hmm. or challenging men for positions of power. They're seen as castrating. Their anger discredits them. And at the same time, if they don't show it, then how can we know that that we're to take them seriously about what they say? These are the systems we, again, we out, part of the book is outlining these patterns and then saying we actually need to change the system. So we need to start listening to the voices of women differently and, and engaging different models. And I think we are. I think some of the candidates who won yesterday are women who have been very open about what they've been angry about, that their dissatisfactions have led them to seek elected office. Right. And that's something that's beginning to change our models for how we can hear women's voices and understand them as politically serious.
1: There's always been one dilemma for America in and around its voting, and that has been that women's voices are heard, but then in instances like with Donald Trump or even in the midterms, as we saw yesterday, Mm -hmm. you have women voters being the reason that people like DeSantis get into powers. And white women let's specifically... Like, yeah, let's be specific. Like that, it's that, white women. Right. White yes. women have now been identified as a very powerful voting bloc. So, for instance, with Brian Kemp, white women outvoted white men.
0: According to these exit polls. Now, right. that is a shocking metric. I mean, we, I want to make sure that... The, no, but I'm saying, it, okay, but even right. if it,
1: but in, in Florida, they go, white women voted white, for DeSantis. As then long
0: you, you, as we have been tracking these things and from before we've been tracking these things. White women have very often voted on behalf of white patriarchal power structures and the, and conservative politics. White women, a majority of white women, have voted for Republicans in every presidential election except two right. since 1952. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge in this country, we are a country that is built around a white patriarchy in which white men have, from the founding have been afforded economic, political, public, social, and sexual power. Right. And other people have been barred from it. White women, via their associations with white men, have enjoyed that proximal power and thus are incentivized to defend it, to uphold it. They benefit from white supremacy, and they are, many of them, dependent on patriarchy, which they are then moved to support politically, and socially. (laughs) This is a long-standing reality that we need to be more open about. It's not that we're suddenly gonna persuade those conservative women to give up their affiliations uh, to the Republican Party, to conservative politics, and to white patriarchal power structures, but we need to figure out the ways that the white women who are angry on behalf of a more progressive and more inclusive future, can do the work of expanding electorate, the electorate, looking to women of color for leadership in terms of how to go forward, acknowledging that members of their demographic are in some ways compromised, right. and and ways in which the white women, in which white women can become angry in progressive ways that wind up getting us to a better place. That's
1: an interesting idea that you just brought up there real quick before I let you go. Mm-hmm. The idea that women of color, black women specifically in America, have been at the forefront of so many movements. From and, the beginning. You know, we saw with like, the Roy Moore elections, you saw that black women as a bloc have always been focused and progressively minded. And so what you're saying then is white women need to take a cue from black women. How do you begin that conversation? And is there a disconnect between white women who are saying like, oh, we're the angry ones, we're taking this, and black women saying like, no, we've been angry, we've got this? Oh, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, there is a disconnect. There's, There's anger. And I believe that that anger between potential allies needs to be expressed. And I'm not the first to believe this is what Audre Lorde was writing about in the in the 1980s, that the anger about racism within a women's movement must be expressed if we're to move forward and, and be productive and generative in terms of where we want to go and, for, and form more solid coalitions. But it is absolutely true that black women who have seen no incentive from white patriarchy... They don't get patriarchy and they don't get white supremacy. Right. And that has to some degree, permitted them to be the groundbreaking thinkers, organizers, leaders of so many progressive movements. And yes, when white women get woken up, as they have over the past two years, Mm -hmm. that's necessary, that's correct. White women should be angry about inequity, not just that they experience, but that other vulnerable people around them experience. But there is a tendency, because they have more power, to come in and appropriate and, and behave as though maybe they... We, I... Uh, whoa!
1: Whoa! 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 Stop the interview.
0: Yeah, we, uh, uh, invented anger. Right. <laughs> right. That we need to. We. That's part of what we need to talk about. No. No. We did not invent it. We did not create it. We did not create protest. And in fact, it is crucial that we look to those who have been angry, active, progressive, and revolutionary before us for cues, direction, and leadership as we move into the future. And that's part of what happened yesterday. Look at the women of color who were elected yesterday. That's one That's that's the that's one step. We need to look at transforming our political parties and and our activist coalitions and looking to women of color for leadership.
1: Thank you so much for being on the show. (laughs) Wonderful having you Good and Mad is a really amazing book and it's available now. Rebecca Trace, everybody.